Hey Rockville, it's Susan Pittman, and I'm here today with Jamie Espinoza and our friend, Dr. Deborah Landau. Debbie is an ecologist with the Nature Conservancy, and I knew Debbie for a while, but I didn't really get to be friends with her until she sat next to me at a volunteer training for Peerless Rockville and showed me a video of herself setting things on fire with a flamethrower. And that is when I knew, Deb, that you and I were going to be friends forever. So how are you? <laughs> Thank you for being here today. We really appreciate it. We can't, we are hoping that you'll answer some of our questions about lawns and lawn care and how to make the environment a little less overwhelming. Absolutely. I'm excited to talk about it. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background before we get into the questions? Sure, absolutely. So I'm the Director of Ecological Management for the Maryland DC Chapter of the Nature Conservancy and I've been in this position for about 22 years. And it's my dream job because I'm from Maryland, I'm from Rockville, and I love being able to think about ecology in my backyard and in our natural areas, all the way from Garrett County to, to Wicomico County, but my heart is in Rockville. That's awesome. It's great that one of the things we've talked about when we were starting this podcast, when we were thinking about starting it, was there are so many people who live here and are from here that uh, do amazing things and make this such a great place to live. So it can be really overwhelming to think about the environment and the problems and the crises that we're now facing with the environment. What can we do in our own yards, in our own little patch to help to make it better? Yeah, so you hit it right there. What's key is your own little patch. Every small bit counts. It all adds up. So there's not any such thing as I just don't have enough. If you've got your little postage stamp yard and all you can do is set aside a corner of it to, to restore, to plant with natives. If you don't have a yard and all you can do is containerize and put native plants or herbs uh, in a container on your porch. If all you have is a roof and all you can do is put some pots out there Every little bit is going to help. It's all connected as insects, as pollinators, as organisms move across the landscape. You're creating a little oasis, even if it's just the tiniest little bit of land, and they will find it and they will utilize it and it will help. That's good to know. It's very comforting. So this year, based on our conversations, I didn't really cut my plants back in the fall. I left them alone. I convinced David not to rake and blow the leaves quite so heavy-handedly, and so we left some things in place for the for for that very reason for insects and critters and all that. When do we need to cut it back so that the plants? Can you give us some guidance on that? I know landscaping is not really your thing, but when is it time to create new space for bugs and animals? Yep. For the spring and summer. Absolutely. First off, well done. And <laughs> yay, David. <laughs> it's It can be really hard to resist cleaning up your yard at the end of the season. And it's really easy to forget how important all of that structure is. The leaves on the ground are harboring caterpillar, pupae, and firefly larvae. And those dead stalks are full of pollinating insects such as solitary bees. So leaving that up, although it, it can look a little messy, is such it, it's just as important as the plants that you're gonna put into the ground in the spring. 
So as to when, that can be tricky. And if you're uncertain, I'm gonna to head to the question for a second. One thing you can do if you really wanna cut down that shrubby stuff, those stalks, is you can cut them down and kind of move them to the side of the yard or set them down in your compost. And, and if there are insects in there that haven't quite yet emerged, they'll still have the opportunity just to do it in a different part of your yard. Um, but key can be waiting until temperatures start to warm up a bit. Granted, this year, unfortunately, one of the hottest on record, we never really had that, that season that felt like a winter, followed by a warm up. But as, as air temperatures start to warm up a bit consistently, as ground temperatures warm up, you'll start to see some green up at the basis of those plants. And that's kind of your key that it's time to to, that you can move that stuff away and give the new growth uh, the opportunity to get some sunlight. Okay, so don't necessarily, they look dead, but they might not be, and there's probably still some bugs in there. So yes. wait till we see green, if, and if we don't see green and it's pretty warm, take them out and put something else in. Exactly, you okay. can stand it. And and again, um, you know, if you can still keep that, that dead biomass somewhere in your yard, or even just toss it in the woods behind your house, that would be great. Okay. Biomass might be the word of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing we did when you and I were working together on the IRCA board with Kashi Wei and Chaz Fajer was to write a tree policy. And Kashi kind of drove that bus, which was fantastic, coming from an accountant. I mean, that's mm. to call Kashi an, an accountant is kind of to call you know Jose Andres a cook um, but that it was fun coming from him because that that wasn't really his area but he was very passionate about it so we all went along with it and then what we ended up with was a really terrific paper about trees and tree cover in neighborhoods do you want to talk a little bit about that and then also I know that Jamie's got a question about that as well yeah absolutely so a lot of us can appreciate the beauty of a large mature tree but there's so much more going on there um, just the back to the biomass, the tree itself is sequestering so much carbon above ground. You see all that amazing wood. And below ground, the root system is A, sequestering carbon, B, it's holding in the soil, C, it's, it's helping with hydrology, it's drawing up water. So there's so much going on that you just don't see. And then a mature tree, say an oak tree, can support literally hundreds of species of, of insects. One mature oak can support over 500 species of just caterpillars, just lepidopterans. And that is such a critical food source for birds when they're rearing their young. Um, so there's an entire ecosystem going on with these trees. And even when that tree dies, it's supporting woodpeckers, it's providing habitat for squirrels, for bats. Um, there's there's so much more than just that big, beautiful tree. So, and often, you know, a planner might say, well, you know, yes, we have to lose that tree, but we'll plant three in its place. And planting three seedlings is not a replacement for a large mature tree. You know, it's gonna take decades for that tree to fill that same ecological role in terms of supporting biodiversity, producing oxygen, providing food for all of those insects, providing uh, shelter for birds and bats and squirrels and, and what have you. So 
protecting the mature trees is, is so much more important than a lot of people understand. That's a good point. Jamie? So something that you both mentioned earlier was you referenced like, hey, what can I do in my patch? But something I've learned moving here, and we can get into some other questions that have related to that, uh, the change here in Maryland. But my patch, what I do on my patch, I've learned being a homeowner here especially impacts other people around me. Um, for example, I went to go cut down a tree once and it became an issue with my neighbors because they did not want me to cut down the tree. Obviously, I have the right to cut down the tree, but I want to be a good neighbor, so it led to a larger discussion. Similarly, I've learned um, through conversations with other neighbors, when you want to use um, poison or mosquito spray or other issues that you may use to control the environment in your property, well, that impacts um, your neighbors who may have a pond with fish in it or you know uh, uh, and people have different views on how, how, what you should be doing with your yard what are the biggest issues that you have see or think about when it concerns the impacts I may have on my neighbors uh, in making decisions on how to use my property yeah it's a really good question and there's so many directions I can go with this so let's think of our tree and our neighbor's yards. So if I have my yard and I wanna say expand the size of my house and I know the limits of my property, well, I might say, well, I can go all the way to the edges of my property and dig because it's mine. But you might not recognize that the tree, that big mature tree in your neighbor's yard, those roots are gonna extend well into your yard and possibly the next yard. So that's one thing that often people don't understand that if they're digging deep and increasing the footprint, say, of their house, that they might be affecting trees adjacent to your property. At the same time, um, people might not recognize what they're not doing to their tree, say, if it's covered in English ivy. They're making that tree a danger. You know, it's a safety issue because English ivy is not a native plant to Maryland, to North America at all. And it completely smothers a tree. You can picture other native vines growing, say poison ivy, which nobody loves. But poison ivy grows up a trunk. It's not gonna completely envelop the branches and kill the tree. Whereas English ivy will absolutely kill the tree. And it's so heavy that that weight is gonna cause limbs to come down early in addition to eventually killing the entire tree. So that's another thing to keep in mind that even if you don't mind the English ivy on your tree, it might be causing safety concern to your neighbors. And then you touched on mosquito control, which is a whole other can of worms, um, in that when you're spraying what, again, you consider your yard, that, that chemical is gonna drift onto your property. The next time it rains, what's on that the ground that's going to run off into your property and you know into our groundwater and into our creeks and ultimately into the rock creek and the chesapeake bay so it, it really is all connected so anything you do not just in a suburban area but even in a rural area um, it that that's going to have a trickle effect and it's going to affect somebody somewhere 
So let me ask you this follow-up. I think it'll be a good follow-up. So I'm from Las Vegas, Nevada. And I think I'm like the average person who moves to Montgomery County in that, you know, I bought a house at a certain age just because that's what you do. You buy a house. And when I bought my house in the winter, right, December. And so I focused on the house because that's what I'm used to coming from where I'm from. You focus on the house. And the fact that there's a yard, you look at your yard and you're like, great, I'll have a place to grill. And that's all you think about. Then April, May hit, and I realized that the homeowner before me was an extensive gardener. And everything just bloomed everywhere. And my wife and I realized, uh-oh, we are not capable or aware of how to deal with these issues that now are popping up. So a question I have is, because I suspect a lot of people who move here are kind of like me, right? The yard is kind of an afterthought. What are the biggest issues that you see that new homeowners or just people moving here are not cognizant about that they really should be thinking about? Like the hot, the, the most important things. Yeah, so you can look at it from two sides. On one side is the question of non-native invasive plants, because often the easiest thing to grow, the showiest plants, are not actually necessarily native to our area. And what'll happen is they can outcompete the native plants, so they'll just bully them out. But at the same time, they don't play the same ecological role as a native plant. The, the nectar might not be suitable for our native plant, uh, our native insects. The, the berries, say, um, heavenly bamboo is a beautiful plant that lots of us see, and they've got these red, beautiful berries. And they actually have cyanide in them, so they can kill the, the, the birds that are coming to eat them. Or butterfly bush is a very popular plant, and it's got these gorgeous purple flowers, and butterflies go crazy over it. But then when they lay their eggs on the plant, um, there's no nutritional value in the leaves. So all the butterflies you're attracting, all their babies are going to die. So you're, you're essentially creating what ecologically you would call a sink. It, it attracts the insects, but they're all, all they're, they will not reproduce. So that's one thing to consider is do I have native plants in my yard and are they playing um, a positive ecological role? And if they're not, you know, you might actually want to go in and try to physically remove them. And then, you know, the flip side sounds like maybe you were overwhelmed um, by how much you had. So often, it, there, there are a lot of really excellent sources of, of information. Uh, the Maryland Native Plant Society, the University of Maryland Extension Service have really good information on helping you identify what plants in your yard are good and serving an important ecological role and which are not good, such as non-natives. And there are lots of volunteers who are willing to come out to your yard and help you decide which ones you want to focus on and which ones you wouldn't want to focus on. And if you wanted to start all over, uh, which sometimes folks do, it's really important to think not just visually, like what's pretty, but think about structure. You know, you want to have some plants that are low to the ground, some mid-level and some high up. You want to have plants that bloom at different times, so therefore are producing nectar and pollen um, in a staggered way. So you might have violets early in the spring, um, but then remember late in the summer, uh, a lot of people forget that there's still pollinators moving through. So you wanna have uh, goldenrods and asters later on. 
it's really easy to think of um, planting milkweeds for monarchs. That's a very popular thing to do, and it's a wonderful thing to do. But after that second generation of monarchs are ready to go to Mexico, they need nectar. And often late in the season, it's hard to find some. So if you want to help monarchs, it's not intuitive that maybe I should plant asters or goldenrods because they're blooming late in the summer. And, but that's often the critical last key step that the monarchs need in order to get to move south. So some research is involved um, and it might help to make a few phone calls, but there's a lot of, a lot of excellent information out there and, and people who are really excited to share. That sounds like fun kind of research though, <laughs> uh, looking up flowers. I like that idea. I like that. I have one last question. Yeah, go ahead, because I wanted to bring some more stuff up about the trees, but go ahead. So we focused on individuals. So now let's kind of go bigger, right, macro. In this area, from a municipal level, what are the hot issues that cities and counties and the state should be focusing on here in Montgomery County and Rockwell, from your view? Yeah. So I'll give, I'll start off with a success. Um, a lot of times people get upset if their neighbor's yard looks, you know, quote unquote messy. Um, it's got lots of plants, it's got things that are really shrubby and messy looking. And Montgomery County actually recently passed an ordinance um, specifically allowing people to have these native gardens and allow them not to have to be neat and tidy and partly because they recognize the ecological benefit to the county itself to have these yards. Um, you know, moving away from, from lawns is, is, a, is a huge step in, in helping our environment. A lot of folks don't realize that lawns every single year, just in the U.S. alone, consume nearly 3 trillion gallons of water a year. And 200 millions of gallon, gallons of, of gas just from mowing, and some 70 million pounds of pesticides. So cities and counties are increasingly understanding that they're shooting themselves in the foot by, um, by having all these strict uh, ordinances to keep tidy yards. And, and increasingly, I think people understand that. It's no longer that crazy person on the corner with their wild lawn. People now walk by and say, wow, you know, look at these wonderful natives. Look at the look at all the pollinators buzzing around. So I think that's one where we've really been moving in the right direction. Yeah. We've got one of those yards on our block and it's really it's wonderful to watch that garden through the seasons. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, that's a lot of fun for sure. Um a couple of thinking of so many things all at the same time. Jamie and I are both kind of, you know, he's from Nevada, I'm from the San Antonio area, and so everything's always framed through water. You never really even get to the native plant part because it's all about the water. So it's great to, I think for people who aren't from here, it's great to hear things that, it, a reframing of things for here in the place where we are now, um, which is great. I, I have heard from people who've moved from the southeast and I, you and I both lived in Baton Rouge, not at the same mm -hmm. time, but you know how that goes when there's a hurricane and you have these huge oak trees and the ground is so wet all the time and downed trees can be a big deal. What can you say to the people from the Gulf South who are terrified of all these 
giant trees and want to cut them down. Because I actually had a, a neighbor move here from the southeast, um, or someone I met, not in our neighborhood, but someone in town who moved here from the southeast and was terrified every time the wind blew because she was convinced the trees were going to fall down because that was something she had experienced in the Gulf South. Yeah, and that, that could be a very real fear. So I'm going to repeat my mantra of get rid of that English ivy uh, because that is the number one thing you can do is, is keep your tree free of heavy ivy, particularly on the branches. Um, secondly, again, focusing on, non, on natives is important. Often our native species are more drought tolerant, certainly um, in the southeast, southwest, but, but here as well. And they tend to have much longer, deeper tap roots. So they, they physically just have a better anchor on the soil. Um, and, and again, just making sure that you maintain um, a healthy tree. It's always good to, to you know, give it a critical eye a couple times a year and you know, look for dead branches and make sure that nothing's over your house. But, but, but if you focus on natives, if you keep that tree healthy, um, I think that's the best you can do. And, and you know, maybe every five or ten years have an expert come and, and look at it and let them know what, what, what they think. Um, because a lot of our, our mature native trees do get hollow um, and will tend to lose some large branches. But, you know, structurally they can be perfectly sound. Yeah, that's good advice to have someone come check it out if you're ever in doubt. Uh, uh, you were talking about interconnectivity and, and how the roots will... The roots don't recognize fences, right? I read this great book. Maybe you read it. I'm just going to toss this in here. It's called The Overstory. Oh, yes. It's fiction, and it's the winner of the Pulitzer Prize, but it is about the interconnectedness of absolutely everything. And if you can muscle your way through the first, <laughs> what do you know, like 50 pages or so, it, it picks up a lot of steam, and it is a beautiful, beautiful book. You've, you've read it? I've read it. And fiction, yes, but based on, on true science. Yes, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, that is true. It's um, it, it's like a historic fiction, but it, it's science. But it's not science fiction. In the tr- I don't want to call it science fiction because there are no aliens or anything. It's, it's fantastic. It's a, a really wonderful book. And, Debbie, maybe you can... Uh, I'll put that book in the show notes. And then, Deb, maybe you, you can give us a list of your favorite um, plants, like you were talking about asters. I had never, I love asters, but I hadn't thought of them in that context of planting them for the end, for the monarch's return journey and at the end of that season. So yeah, good to have a few, just a few. I, I don't want to overwhelm people, but um, just definitely a few of those would be great. Andrea's question had to do with keeping your lawn nice as well as safe for kids, and I'm guessing you're going to tell us what's good for mosquitoes is good for children. But go ahead. (laughs) Go ahead. Well, okay, so if you were done the mosquito control, um, it it really is not going to help you actually control mosquitoes. Um, If you're coming, first of all, mosquitoes, you're mostly going to see them at, at the dusk. So when, when, when the sun starts to set, and that's when they're most active. And most of these mosquito companies are coming around in the middle of the day. So everything they're spraying, they're just gonna hit, you know, the butterflies, the bees, stuff that's active in the middle of the day. Um, and they're not necessarily hitting the wettest areas. You know, your mosquitoes are breeding in those little, wee little bits of standing water, you know, at the edges of your gutter, um, the rim of the flower pots, 
plates that that's in your backyard uh, the the wheel rim of your wheelbarrow it's not coming out and spraying your lawn is absolutely not going to hit any mosquitoes uh, what it what it is going to do is it'll kill a lot of other insects including the predators that are going to go and eat those mosquitoes um, if, if you want to control mosquitoes, you need to do your best to, to find standing water in your yard and, and really find it. It's, it's really hard. <laughs> and then make make your environment uh, more suitable for other beneficials like bats. Bats eat so many mosquitoes. So keep, um, you know, install a bat box. Uh, do things that, that, that welcome other, other organisms that can can restore the balance because it's all about balance. And it and if where you're hanging out the most is say just your back porch, just the lightest little breeze is gonna keep those mosquitoes away. They're really weak flyers. So install a ceiling fan or just set up a big old box fan next to where you sit. And that alone should be enough to keep the mosquitoes away from your body. That's great. We, uh, when, when I lived in Texas, we lived just north of San Antonio and we had a enough land to have chickens and guinea hens. And so the guinea hens took care of the mosquitoes. Those and the bats took care of the mosquitoes for us. And the ticks. <laughs> and the ticks. That is true. The guinea hens did really love ticks. Yep. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Um, okay. It's the perennial argument around Rockville. What do we do about the damn deer? Yeah. So that, that can be really... A tough one to bring on. Um, deer are native and we love them, but the habitat that they live in has been altered by us. They like the best habitat for deer is a forest edge with an open field, and that pretty much is our homes with a yard in the back. So we're creating exactly what they need. So what's happened um, is in addition to creating the perfect habitat is we've removed their natural predators. There are no more wolves. So we've created an imbalance in the system and now there are far more deer than our environment can healthfully um, tolerate. So if you look when you see those deer on the side of the road, you know, they, they're, they're, they're scraggly, they're, they're, they're hungry, they're starving, uh, they're not healthy, they're diseased, um, and they're more likely to be out at times when they shouldn't be out, so in the middle of the day, so therefore they're more likely to get hit by a car, and it's a horrible, horrible way for a deer to die is, is, is after a car accident, and obviously it's a horrible way for a person to interact with a deer no matter how it ends for the person or the car. So as, as much as we might love deer, um, we have thrown off the balance. And the best way to be kind and humane to a deer is to ensure that it has healthy young. And to do that, you need fewer deer. Um, and that's it, there's just no way around it. And unfortunately, where we live today, we have to manually go in and remove uh, the deer, and that's so painful. I love deer. I think they're gorgeous. Um, I, I get so excited when I see them in the, in the yard, unless they're eating all my trees. Um, but understanding that um, if you really love the deer, you want it to be healthy and for its young to be healthy, that you have to bring the population down. 
um, to essentially caring capacity, what, what our, our environment can support so that they're healthy. One, I love you now. Two, you've just lost a lot of friends. Because <laughs> I'm on the same side as you on this issue. So the question I have as a follow-up is, at the municipal, county, city level, what is the best policy approach they can take to, to, to put into place what you think uh, should be done? Yeah, so the most straightforward thing is hiring sharpshooters. They're extremely accurate. It's the most humane way to put down a deer. Um, and all of the deer meat goes to the homeless. So the, the meat is, is put to an excellent cause. Secondarily, if, if people are concerned about hearing gunfire, and I absolutely understand that, that concern, um, you can hire bow hunters, and these are people with compound bows. They're, um, they're very, very accurate. They're, they're, they're carefully selected. Um, and again, it's, it's so much more humane than watching a deer hemorrhage after being hit by a car or starving to death or dying of disease uh, because a, a starving deer is going to be a stressed deer and it will be far more susceptible to disease. Um, but I, I, I completely understand how politically charged that is and how difficult it is to hire people to go out and kill, you know, Bambi. So it's hard, but that, that really is um, the only way to, to quickly and efficiently and safely bring down the population. Yeah, and you know, the herd is the herd and more will come. So it, it is, it, it's got to be a, um, a policy, not a one-time project is my feeling about it, that it, it's, it's got to be, a, and I've, I keep saying this, I think I've said this, at, I think I said this to Matt Perkins when he was here and we were talking about it, it's got to be, and we, we need an urban wildlife management uh, plan. How are we going to manage, and Jamie has brought this up, it's not just the deer, it's the bunnies and the, the mangy coyotes that wander in from Rock Creek, it's the, it, it's all of it, we've got to, do a better job of, of managing all of it. Yeah, but it is such a difficult balance. It, it really is. is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, I have a crazy idea about the deer. And then I have a crazy one about yards. And so the deer, could we plant a deer garden so they can all just go there and come and not eat our plant? Because I don't like I don't like the idea of hunting the deer because they eat my landscape. I think if they're not healthy, that's when we do that you know and I think we're kind of all on the same page with that it's not about landscape it's about keeping doing the right thing and keeping a herd healthy but what if we just planted a big giant deer garden <laughs> at Redgate you know just like an acre of beets and carrots and just like kind of you know that wouldn't work would it well no I mean it would certainly attract the deer and and it has been very successful for some farmers to to plant sections, you know, have, have fallow sections so that the deer are, are um, diverted away from their crops. So different versions of that have actually worked. Um, but in our suburban landscape, uh, it, it's just hard. You'll just bring them in and okay. it, has to, it has to be balanced by reducing the herd size at the same time. So they'd be like, oh, these beets at Redgate Park are really delicious. <laughs> Let me go see what these people have in their yards. There you go. All right. Yeah. Well, okay. So here's my other crazy idea, um, and this one I don't think is, I'm actually surprised that someone that I thought of, that people actually use a deer garden. I was like, that's just dumb, but, um, but it's good to hear that it does work in oh, some yeah. situations. What if we had a foodscapes program? 
what if we gave people a rainscape or kind of rebate for landscaping and doing it nicely uh, for planting food? Like if you plant your front yard and a third of it's food, we'll give you, you know, $1,500 rebate. I think that's brilliant. I mean, there's nothing worse for your home environment than a lawn. It's an ecological desert. It, it serves no role ecologically whatsoever. It's not supporting the pollinators. Um, it's encouraging you to water and to use pesticides. The only insect that really likes a lawn are Japanese beetles. Boy, do they love them. So I think it's brilliant to have a diversity of plants and your vegetable garden is absolutely going to attract pollinators and you're, you're, creating, um, you're creating nutritional food that you can eat, that your kids can watch grow and help. And I think that's absolutely brilliant. I'll sign on. So you just said having a lawn is essentially useless. Oh yes, so, it's, it's more than useless. So you would agree that putting in a pickleball court in your yard <laughs> Here it comes. would be more useful than having a lawn, right, my wife who listens? Would it be impervious? Uh, I don't know. Actually, I can't answer <laughs> If it's that. paved, then no. Oh. I'm sorry. You really want that water to infiltrate down through the ground, through the root system, and then down to... Well, if I can make it that way, and I put a little plants around it, then I'm good. There you go. We can, we can move past this. gravel pickleball court, but they make permeable paper. Sure, uh, yeah. Just remember, yeah. you you anything you make that's going to stop that water is going to alter the hydrology and, uh, yeah. I'm now embarrassed by my lack of planting in the backyard. I don't, it's it's hard because I don't, you don't know what like I don't know what to put back there. I, I and I'm embarrassed. I've been here ten years and I was not in this house, but I've been in Rockville for ten years and I still remember the moonscape of my backyard in Texas and um I, and I just I'm still at a loss as to how to manage the backyard other than to mow it not too short. So what I tell people is baby steps, absolutely baby steps. Start with a tiny little patch, you know, go to a native plant sale and say, you know, I'm just starting off here. What can I start with? What is my, you know, my starter native? And they'll help you and and see how that does. And, and then if that does well, plant a couple more. Um, and over time, you know, you can come in and just fill up your, your yard with natives and you can have a plan, I've got the structure, I've got the time of year, staggered, and then it's all just gonna go to pot. It, it's gonna decide for itself what plants are gonna do well in your particular yard based on your sun or your aspect or your how wet it is. The plants will, will battle it out amongst themselves and they're gonna decide where they wanna grow and which are gonna do better. So start small, be willing, for it to do its own thing and, and learn what the plants are telling you, what what is ecologically appropriate for your your little yard. And and be patient. There's it's not a race. Every little bit is gonna help. That's really encouraging. You know, we ran into each other at the free tree giveaway by the city of Rockville yes. and you were getting a berry plant. I got a service berry service tree. Service berry. Yeah. And I got two hazelnut trees who and I have kept them a lot. Yay. They are alive. <laughs> So what should I what should I plant with my hazelnuts now that I know they're viable they're healthy we've got them fenced from the deer what what do we do Yeah so if you want more of those small trees and that's a really important size that's often lacking you know we'll have a lot of 
little herbaceous stuff and then we'll have our big oaks, but often we don't have that structure in the middle. You can plant, so now you've got nuts. That's a terrific fall uh, food. But you can plant, so you can go back my service berry, or you can plant uh, chokeberry trees, which are a wonderful native tree, uh, and the birds will absolutely love those berries. Um, you can plant uh, dogwoods, and those berries will, will persist through the winter time. So you can continue with a diversity of small trees, um, but you can also uh, move to below the tree and maybe put in some, you know, some herbaceous plants, say back to those asters or, or some, some viburnums. Viburnum is a terrific plant that produces beautiful flowers. It's going to have a source of nectar and then in the fall it'll have berries. So, so mix it up. That sounds good. I'll definitely put some asters around there this summer for the, for the butterflies. Excellent. Yeah. Jamie? I just had the dumbest idea question that just came to mind based on our last podcast. Is marijuana an invasive species by chance? Can it's it turn not. into one? Oh, okay. <laughs> just curious. Because I suspect in a couple of months a lot of my neighbors may be planting. Matt Perkins is going to want to come back. They do yeah. make a lot of pollen. <laughs> oh, well, okay. That's it. No. That's the only question. There we go. Okay. Any last words, Debbie? I just can't say enough how every little bit counts. You know, even if you're feeling overwhelmed, just just identify one little area that you can shave off and, and plant something in and be tolerant of your neighbors. Um, allow them to, to experiment as well and, um, and appreciate that every little bit that you do and that your neighbor is doing is helping all of us. I really love that you talked about being tolerant of your neighbors. Our last guest, Matt Perkins, he also spoke about that, about being kind to one another, about being open to one another. And I think that's a really important theme as we continue on in our gardening, in our civic lives, to uh, make sure we're remembering that. Yeah. It's the best advice. Thank you so much for being here. It's oh, such a true oh, question. Oh, food. food. Oh, we almost forgot about food. Okay. Where have you been? Yeah, no, Jamie was just listing where he's they're eating these days. Have you tried any, where, where's one of your favorite Rockville places? So one of the things I love the most about Rockville is how much amazing diverse food I can get. Um, I'm crazy for fall. I love fall 75 um, on the pike. I find that if it's cash only, it tends to be really good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love Bob 66. I love, yes. I love some good soup dumplings. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like if it's in Rockville on the pike, you can't go wrong. That's good advice. I love Bob's. I, sometimes when Dave's out of town, I'll just get an order of the Szechuan green beans. Yes. Yeah. Otherwise, just having green. No, beans. the pandemic made them non-cash only, right? Oh, like they used to be cash okay. only, but the pandemic forced them to have to accept credit. Oh, that's funny. I still stop right, at the right. bank every time. <laughs> So. I did not know that. Noted. Yeah. And you're going, are y'all going to Amalfi's tonight? The new Amalfi's. The new Amalfi's we're going to try tonight, which is technically not in Rockville. It's about a quarter mile outside of Rockville, yeah. technically. Yeah. 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 And I, of course, if you're in town center Monday through Friday, you will find me at the Dawson's Hot Bar, most likely, for Excellent. lunch at this space. It's really good. Oh, yeah. Thursdays, right. they make Indian chickpeas. Ooh. God, it's so good. <laughs> All right. Now I'm hungry. Thanks, everybody, and thank you, especially Debbie. Always such a pleasure to see you and spend time with you. Thank you.